Section twenty seven of Tales from Yokoi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avai in December two thousand fifteen. Tales from Yokoi by Mori Yokoi. The Bad Old Times. Part one. In those sad times when the accursed, merciless Tartar was ravaging our good country two good hungarian brother warriors and kinsmen simon and michael kopond after the devastation of tomasfolu of which great city not a vestige remains to the present day escaped somehow from the burning and massacring and taking refuge among the bulrushes lay concealed therein for many days and nights often up to the tops of their heads in water for the evil bloodthirsty enemy scoured even the morasses in search of fugitives with the firm determination of extirpating every mogyar from the face of the earth once and for all thus hiding by day and skulking by night they made their way gradually but steadily towards the west so far as the course of the stars pointed it out to them hoping still somewhere to find a refuge they had no other food but the eggs of wild ducks and moor-hens, and whatever they might find in the nests of the marsh-birds, that they lived upon. One day, when they had already gone a long way and thought that they had well distanced the Tartars, they ventured to emerge from the wilderness of rushes, and by the beautiful light of the moon they then beheld, some distance in front of them, a tower. "'That means there must be a town there,' they thought let us make for it here we shall be in safety so far the tartar has not come for every man in those days believed that then as had been usual at other times every robber horde bursting into the kingdom when once it has well loaded itself with booty returns again as a matter of course to its own country all night then they proceeded in the direction of the tower before them when they drew close to it they perceived for the first time that this tower had no roof but when they got closer still they saw that all the houses of the town had been levelled with the ground and when they entered the street they saw that none dwelt there but wolves and savage dogs bayed at them from behind the pillars of the gates within which every sort of human shape was lying shapes without heads women transfixed with darts mothers with long dishevelled black tresses covering their children with their dead bodies the youths covered their eyes with horror at this spectacle but still there they must remain till the night of the following day concealed somewhere for dawn was now close at hand and it was not good to come out in the open in the bright sunlight so they went into the church that they might hide themselves there either in the crypt or perhaps in a sacristy ha the whole church was a funeral vault there they had cut down the pride the flower of the nation women men and children lay heaped up together among the burnt rafters the pale moon shining through the roofless and dilapidated building illuminated them inside they had to wield their swords with right good will to drive out the wolves who had come hither to perform the office of grave-diggers and who as often as they were chased away came back and bayed at the open door then said simon the elder of the two brethren brother michael 
these evil wolves will give us no peace, and because of them we shall get no rest. And yet, for sheer weariness and want of sleep, we can go not a step further. Lie you down, therefore, your best place will be close beside the altar, for there God is not far from you, and I, meanwhile, keep guard the door and keep the wild beasts away from you, and when I am aweary, then you shall rise up and watch over me. Michael sought him out, therefore, a place near the altar, and lay down beside the dead body of a warrior. It looked just as if the two of them were sleeping, or as if the two of them were dead. Simon, meanwhile, gathered together some fallen darts from the field of battle, found him a bow, and leaned against the lintel of the doorway. Whenever the hideous monsters approached, he shot an arrow among them, and every time he did so, a fight arose between the wounded wolf and the others, which he thought had bitten him. This disgusting combat lasted amidst ugly snarling and snapping for about an hour, when an old wolf began to howl hideously, as if by way of signal to his fellows, who howled back again from every part of the town, and then, suddenly, the whole lot of them made off, scattering in every direction. Simon speedily conjectured the cause of this sudden flight, hastened back to his brother and cried, Awake, little brother, I hear the hoot of the horns, the Tartars are coming back. There was no other hope of escape than for the pair of them to lie down among the dead bodies with their faces turned earthwards, thus quietly to await the newcomers. Presently they appeared amidst the ruins of the church. Oft times it happened thus. The Tartars thought to themselves, the people who have taken refuge fancy we have nothing more to seek in the devastated towns, and will come out of their holes. Let us go and hunt them down. And in this way very many perished. It was a man of that very town who led them back. An inhabitant of a Christian town had become a Tartar, joined himself to the enemies of his faith and country, and went before to show them the best places to plunder. And this wicked, accursed man was now wearing the Tartar dress, a high-peaked fur cap, white breeches, and murdered the Tartar tongue to give them pleasure. God grant the words may stick in his throat and choke him. The two brethren could gather from their talk that the evil renegade had led the enemy hither, in order that he might show them the entrance to the crypt in which the fugitive population had concealed their treasures and then walled up the door behind them. They immediately broke it open, and with a great racket and uproar dispersed among the discovered treasures, breaking in pieces whatever was too large to be taken away whole. The renegade got for his share the cover of a pyx, which the vile wretch stuck in front of his cap by way of ornament. "'Let me once get a fair hold of you,' thought Simon the warrior to himself. He was looking on at all this with half an eye as he lay among the dead bodies. Then the murderous Tartars piled up a fire on the altar, slaughtered a horse in the church, broiled it in hunks on huge spits, and squatted down to devour it. It was an abomination to behold them. The Tartar convert ate along with them. Suddenly a burning ember from the crackling fire lit upon Michael the warrior's extended palm. 
Simon the warrior saw it well, and trembled lest his younger brother might make some movement under this burning torture, when both of them must needs perish. But warrior Michael very nicely and quietly closed tightly the palm of his hand, so that nobody noticed it, and stifled the burning ember, so that not even its expiring fizzle was audible. Towards dawn the Tartars began to set off again, mounted their bare-backed horses, and scudded further on, never observing that they had left two living men among the dead bodies. The two warriors were careful not to leave the church till late in the evening, but went on fighting there with the beasts of the field, and in the daytime they found yet other adversaries in the vultures who hovered all day above their heads, and all but tore their eyes out with their claws, because they stood between them and the dead bodies. They gave thanks to God when at sundown they were able to quit the horrible place and go on further. Along the level plain they went as quickly as they could hasten, not even daring to look behind them, though there they would have seen nothing but the black clouds of smoke from the burning towns which the wind drove over their heads. Behind them the Tartar was coming. Towards evening they reached a lofty hill in which dwelt a gypsy. The gypsy was doubly a foe, being both an alien and a heathen. He was, therefore, just the sort of man to give good advice to fugitives. In those days all sorts of folks were flying from the Tartars, flying whithersoever they saw light before them, some on foot, some on horseback, some on cars, men, women, and children. Alas, my dear creatures, wailed the gypsy, you come to a bad place when you come hither. You would do very much better to turn back in the direction whence the Tartar bands are coming, for they, at least if you surrender, will not cut you down, but will only make slaves of you. But alas, in front a far greater danger awaits you, for in yonder forest dwell giants, terribly huge monsters with antlered heads and mouths so wide that they can swallow a man down whole. They seize all those who fly towards the forest and roast them on large spits. They don't hurt me, because I give them wine to drink when they come hither. Before now the refugees had heard from the warriors flying from the direction of Grosvardain of those Tartar giants who had scattered a whole host by simply appearing before it. Nay, a herdsman, a worthy man of Kamanian origin, had sworn that he had seen them. They strode over the fields, he said, four ells at one stride, and one of them had sat down quite easily on the roof of a house, with his legs dangling down. At this rumour the poor, terrified, common folks preferred to run back into the jaws of the Tartars, rather than fall beneath the fangs of these monsters. But the two Copons said to one another very prudently, Look now, there are far fewer of these monsters, whereas the Tartars can be numbered by hundreds of thousands. The flesh of a giant is but flesh, and a sword may pierce it. Goliath also was a giant, and the shepherd's son slew him. Let us rather go against them. And they set off towards the forest. Well, you will repent it, the gypsy cried after them. As the warriors drew near to the forest, there emerged from among the trees twelve terrible forms, thrice as big as ordinary men. They had heads as large as barrels, their moustaches were like horses' tails, 
they covered two ells at each stride and swords two ells in length hung heavily on their shoulders well little brother said simon the warrior grasping the hilt of his sword at the sight either they are going to eat us or we will eat them choose your man and i'll choose mine and they drew their swords and rushed upon the giants the monstrous shapes at first raised a great shout at them and flourished their swords but perceiving that they could by no means terrify the two warriors they turned tail and with long strides hastened back towards the forest they were no giants from the hand of nature after all but only jugglers of the tartar khan who could stride about on long stilts and dressed up to ape god's wonders so as to scare back the fugitive population into the claws of its murderers the gypsy knew this very well for he was in league with them when simon the warrior saw the giants take to flight he encouraged his brother still more against them but they had no need to hunt for them in the forest for they could not move quickly enough on their stilts among the trees and shrubs their masks and wrappings also impeded them so that they could not make a proper use of their heavy swords so that the two brothers cut down every one of them without mercy and stuck their painted monster heads on the tops of stakes on the borders of the forest that the flying people might take courage at the sight when they beheld them from afar and the name of the treacherous gypsy simon the warrior wrote down on the hilt of his sword and then they again set out westward till at length they reached the waters of the tice where they found a ferry in front of which many people were then waiting all of whom had fled from before the tartars the toll was in those days collected by certain of the patarines or albigenses for in the days of king andrew and the palatine dines all the tolls had fallen into the hands of such like oppressed people it might be supposed that in times of such great danger when every one was flying from fire amidst bloodshed that the ferrymen would let the fugitives over the rivers for nothing and of a truth christian mogyar men would have done so but the impious paterines laid heavier contributions than usual on the refugees who fled from before the tartars carrying all they possessed on their persons and these last possessions they had to give up to the godless ferrymen the women had to give up their earrings the men their shoe buckles by way of ransom to the hard-hearted wretches to ferry them over but those who had nothing and were flying as beggars received godless usage as their hands for they were compelled to repeat after them a manichaean prayer which was nothing but a frightful blasphemy against the one true god and his saints in the tartar tongue and very many repeated it not thinking at all in their deadly fear of the salvation of their souls those who feared to utter the abomination searched elsewhere for a ford across the tice or if they could swim set about swimming and so many perished there the two brethren had naught wherewith to pay the fairy toll but the blaspheming tartar prayer simon the warrior said he would rather let himself be cut in pieces by the tartars than blaspheme the true god and the blessed virgin but michael having more sang-froid assured him that he would say it for them both and made out that his brother was dumb he therefore repeated the horrible blasphemy twice once for himself and once for his elder brother while simon with clenched fists 
repeated silently to himself an Our Father and a Hail Mary. Thus they got ferried over to the opposite shore, and when Simon the warrior reproached his brother for yielding to compulsion and repeating the blasphemous verses, Michael reassured his elder brother by telling it that after every verse he had said to himself, Not true, not true. Yet for all that it was a grievous sin. And warrior Simon marked the name of the Manichaean on the hilt of his sword. But now the refugees plunged into the jaws of a fresh danger. The great battle of the Soyo had just been lost. The Tartar flood filled the whole space between the Danube and the Tice. When they emerged on the border of a forest, the two brothers saw nothing all around them, right up to the horizon, but the smoke of burning villages. They returned, therefore, into the forest, and began to fare northwards, hearing on every side of them the sound of the Tartar horns replying to each other seeking a refuge for the night in the trunks of hollow trees and finding no other sustenance than wild honey and beech mast with which to satisfy the cravings of hunger on the fourth day they reached a respectable house in the midst of the forest which was defended neither by trench nor bastion and yet was not burnt down the young warriors marvelled thereat they did not know that in this house dwelt a moor, and the moors were all on the side of the Tartars. They brought them tidings, conducted them to the towns, and were their spies and receivers. What the Tartars stole, they bought of them cheaply, and peddled it in Moravia, and even further still. This was the house of one of these hucksters. A great red ox's head was painted on the door, that the Tartars might recognize that the dweller therein was one of their men. The moor received them with great amiability when they crossed his threshold, assured them that they might stay with him, and immediately set about making ready a meal for them, which was a great consolation to the honest, starving wanderers. While they were complaining to their honest host of the hardships they had undergone, a noble lady came panting up to the house, from whose ragged robes and unstitched sandals one could see that she had fled afar for refuge, and asked whether her beloved husband and her little boy had come thither. There were five of them hiding in the forest, she said, her husband with their little boy, a faithful retainer, a nurse, and a little baby. All at once they had heard the barking of dogs, and her husband had said that the other three should remain behind in a cave, while he himself, with the little boy, went on in front to look about, and see whether there were any human dwelling near at hand. They had waited for him a long time, till at last the wife, terrified at the long absence of her husband, had come forth herself to seek him. Were they perchance here? "'It is possible they may have come hither, my child,' said the moor with a shrug. "'Many seek refuge here nowadays. What were they like?' The woman described her husband's appearance and his garments, and then the little boy. On the little boy's finger, she said, was a black horsehair ring with a little white cross. None could take it off, even if they killed him for it. He could be recognized by that.' The moor replied that he had not cast eyes on them, and the poor woman, wailing and wringing her hands, went further on to seek for her husband and her little boy. 
Meanwhile, a meal had been served up for the young warriors, seized flesh in a huge cauldron. The moor also brought them wine, and, hoping they would enjoy their food, left them to themselves. Sir Michael, who was very hungry, would have attacked the liberal repast forthwith, but Sir Simon stopped him. "'Had we not better first offer up our thanks, Michael?' said he. So they said a grace, as it becomes God-fearing men to do, and then only did they turn to their meat. And behold, God had mercy on them and was gracious to them, for when Sir Michael plunged his curved eating-knife into the kettle, what think you he brought out of it on the point of his knife? A tiny bone encircled by a black horsehair ring, with a tiny white cross in the midst of the ring. The youths leaped in terror to their feet, and, with no further thought of either meat or drink, and without taking leave of host or hostess, rushed from thence as fast as their legs could carry them, and only late in the evening arrived in front of the cave of a poor hermit, to whom they told the horrible thing that had befallen them. "'Give thanks to God, my sons,' said the old ascetic, "'that he has delivered you from that evil place.' for the dwellers therein are none other than the impious moors the spies of the tartars who give to the refugees who seek a shelter there stupefying drugs in their drink and when sleep has overcome them chop off their heads for the heads they get a denarius apiece from the tartars and the flesh of the bodies they give to the refugees who come afterwards thus most monstrously causing the mogyors to eat the bodies of their own brethren Rejoice that you have not tasted thereof. Clear fresh water and dried roots will now be a banquet to you, and we will share them together. Remain here until morning, and then go even higher and higher towards the north. You cannot miss your way. On whichever side of the trees you find moss, in that direction the north will be. If you go a seven days' journey through valleys and hills, you will see before you the highest mountains of the borders of Hungary. There will you hear a bell, and it shall guide you. There will you find shelter. There are the stones of refuge, which those who are skilled in war have provided with means of defence, so that they may receive fugitives from every quarter. There also will be a good place for you. You will find there an altar, bread, strong bastions, which the good God and your good swords will defend against a thousand enemies. Stop nowhere till you reach that place, for danger and desolation are all over the land. The young warriors kissed the hand of the good old man for his good counsel, and early in the morning, according to his directions, went all alone through the dense forests. They went far, they went for a long time, they left behind them the oak hills, they left the beech hills behind them, and now they were among the dark, solemn pines, but further and further still they had to go. End of section 27